You're listening to Democracy IRL from the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford University. We bring together thought leaders and academics for conversations on the most pressing issues facing democracy and development today. I'm your host, Francis Fukuyama. I'm really honored to be asked to give the Donald Stone Annual Lecture by ASPA. Uh, That's particularly in light of the fact that I'm a political scientist and not a public administration uh, scholar. Um, It is my belief that public administration has been undervalued very much in recent decades. It used to be one of the four major sub-disciplines within political science until it was downgraded at a certain point. There are complex reasons for this, some of them methodological, but I think that this was a really big uh, mistake. Uh, I don't think that political science spends nearly enough time studying executive branches and bureaucracies, and so it's very important to have the field of public administration there to do that. Uh, So my topic for today is entitled Valuing the Deep State. Uh, I think that fits directly with this year's conference topic, Protecting Democracy for the Next Generation, the Role and Responsibility of Public Administration. I believe that effective public administration is absolutely critical to the success uh, of any modern liberal democracy. Modern public administration was built around the Weberian ideal of bureaucracy, that Bureaucrats would be nonpartisan expert administrators in an impersonal state serving public interest. This concept uh, today seems old-fashioned. It's been under pretty relentless attack, especially by conservatives, for many years. This really began uh, in the 1930s at the beginning of the New Deal and the growth of the American administrative state. But it's continued that entire period and in recent years has come back in the form of attacks on the deep state. And indeed, after the COVID pandemic, a lot of conservatives have coalesced around hostility uh, to the American public health bureaucracy. This is true in other democracies uh, outside of the United States as well. So what I wanna do in this talk is to defend the idea of bureaucratic autonomy. That is the necessity of delegating substantial authority to bureaucracies in a modern democracy. But we do need to think carefully about how democratic principles control bureaucratic agents and admit that there is actually some justice to conservative complaints about an out-of-control administrative state because you can find uh, definite examples of that. The central problem with bureaucracy today Uh, I would contend, and I'll explain this by the end of my talk, is actually not that it is um, insufficiently constrained, but that in many cases it's overly constrained and therefore cannot produce the outcomes that citizens demand uh, from their government. So delegation uh, to bureaucracies, in fact, needs to be broadened in many cases rather than restricted. So let me begin by talking about the general problem of delegation, which I think is central both to modern politics, to organizations, corporations uh, of any sort. In democratic theory, bureaucrats are given authority through a series of delegated powers. 
the theory tells us that the people are sovereign, uh, that they are the principles in a principal-agent relationship, uh, and there's a series of delegations, the first level being to elected representatives like legislators and presidents, and then subsequently to agencies that are responsible for carrying out the people's wishes. The reality of actual bureaucracies uh, is very different. This is never how things actually worked. Herbert Simon pointed out many, many years ago that authority in many bureaucracies flows in the opposite direction. The reason for this is that bureaucratic agents often have knowledge and expertise that the political principles lack, uh, and authority therefore often travels in the other direction from the agents to the principles. Oftentimes the agents are the ones that actually set the agendas for the principles because they have that expert knowledge. This uh, relationship, this reverse relationship, was parodied in the BBC series Yes Minister that in later seasons became Yes Prime Minister, in which senior bureaucrat Humphrey was able to wrap uh, his minister around his little finger uh, and basically uh, act as a puppeteer. Uh, but um, there's a lot of reasons for delegating substantial authority to uh, uh, expert agencies. Uh, one has to do with local knowledge. Uh, the closer you are or the lower down in the bureaucracy you are, the more access you have to actual information about situations on the ground. You can make decisions more uh, quickly. And importantly, lower level uh, uh, agents are more accountable to the people because they're uh, Behavior can be observed, and if you've got the proper mechanisms, uh, they can be uh, reprimanded for not taking the correct decisions. You can illustrate this uh, set of ideas in the military command structures that have developed uh, in the better militaries around the world in uh, over the past century. The German military during the Second World War developed the doctrine of Aufstrogtaktik, which the Americans after uh, Vietnam uh, converted into a doctrine of mission orders. In both of these cases, the doctrine says that senior commanders need to delegate as much authority as possible to the lowest possible command levels uh, because it's the lower level commanders that are in contact with the enemy that can act quickly and that can make the best decisions. And I think the uh, power of these militaries is really very much related to that uh, act of delegation. You can see this today in Ukraine. The Ukrainians, having trained under American um, mission orders doctrine, have a decentralized command structure in which lower-level officers are given substantial authority in Russia. Oftentimes, even small decisions have to be referred up a chain of command, sometimes all the way to Moscow before anyone can act. And that accounts, I think, for a lot of the Ukrainian success uh, in the battlefield in the, um, in the year, uh, more than a year now that this terrible war has uh, taken place. I think that you see a lot of variation across different societies with regard to the degree to which uh, people are willing to delegate authority to bureaucrats. 
I think that in East Asia, you have a very strong Chinese cultural tradition. Uh, in fact, this is probably the single most important aspect of Chinese culture, the respect for educated bureaucrats that uh, uh, lead the government. This is true in Japan, in South Korea, in um, Taiwan, in many other parts of the Chinese cultural sphere. In Europe, you also have a greater uh, respect for state authority uh, coming out of their experience in modernization. Uh, it's somewhat less than in East Asia. Uh, and I think in recent years, the European Union Commission has come under attack by some conservatives as being an unaccountable bureaucracy. But the national bureaucracies in that part of the world generally get much more respect. It's the United States in a way that is the outlier among uh, developed countries where there's always been a very deep suspicion of delegated authority, uh, which comes out of probably one of the most basic elements of American political culture, this deep tradition of anti-statism that exists in different forms on both the right and the left. Delegation uh, has been attacked uh, by conservatives under various headings, such as a supposed non-delegation doctrine that the courts have used to invalidate uh, bureaucratic decision-making. I should just note that this latter idea is really nonsense. There is no such clause in the U.S. Constitution that forbids uh, delegation to bureaucracies. Delegation has been practiced really since the first days of the American Republic. The first Congress of the United States delegated to Alexander Hamilton and his Treasury Department the job of cleaning up revolutionary war debt. And so for anyone to argue that delegation is somehow generically uh, unconstitutional is ridiculous. Nonetheless, there has been a deep-seated populist opposition to delegation that appeared, for example, in Andrew Jackson's opposition to a national bank that was based on similar suspicions about elites, shadowy elites, being able to control uh, the national government and the supposed desire to turn over governments directly to the people. This suspicion of federal agencies obviously continues up to the present. You know, someone like Ron Paul uh, is in that Andrew Jackson tradition with his belief in the gold standard and the need to shut down the Federal uh, Reserve. And so this has been a long-standing element of American populism that in many respects doesn't have a counterpart in either East Asia or, uh, or in Europe. Now, if you ask how it is that public agencies control bureaucrats in U.S. law, I think that there are five basic mechanisms for doing this. The first mechanism are ex-ante uh, rules specified by Congress for how bureaucrats ought to act. The most important of these rules is the 1946 Administrative uh, Procedure Act that required notice and comment uh, that uh, required agencies to take account uh, of those comments in their uh, in their rulemaking. But it also exists in a lot of other different forms in the organic legislation defining the rules that bureau uh, uh, bureaucracies have to follow, like the federal acquisition regulations or the hundreds of pages of rules that were written in the wake of the uh, 
Dodd-Frank Act regulating the financial sector after the 2008 financial crisis. All right, that's the first mechanism. The second is ex post review that exists in a lot of forms. It can exist in the form of uh, congressional hearings, uh, but legally uh, the most important are uh, judicial reviews uh, by the courts, by the federal courts, going all the way up to the Supreme Court. American policy in this area was shaped very heavily by the 1983 Chevron deference decision by the Supreme Court, which essentially argued that when a bureaucracy is judged by the court to be making a reasonable rule that uh, the courts would defer to the judgment of the expert agency on the grounds that courts really do not have the expertise uh, of the bureaucrats in making these substantive decisions on rulemaking. Uh, there are other forms of ex post review, like administrative law judges that are specified under the APA. Uh, a lot of the immigration uh, or asylum hearings that are now uh, being conducted uh, are done by uh, ALJs rather than by Article III uh, judges. They're part of the executive branch, and it's part of the way that the exec executive branch uh, uh, limits uh, its own discretion. The third mechanism is appointment power. This is pretty straightforward. This is specified in the Constitution where the president is given authority uh, with the uh, advice and consent of the Senate to appoint uh, cabinet ministers. The fourth mechanism is removal power. Now, one might think that removal power and appointment power are equivalent and that uh, if you have the power to do the one, you should have the power to do the other. But this has never been true in uh, American uh, constitutional history. Uh, removal power is actually not specified in the Constitution. And the Founding Fathers engaged in a very sophisticated discussion that led to something called the Decision of 1789, in which the uh, president was given uh, almost unlimited removal power. No less a figure than James Madison argued that um, the ability to remove recalcitrant officials was an intrinsic uh, part of executive authority and therefore could not be abridged. And this is a situation that really remained in place pretty much up until the Second World War. After the war, uh, constraints on removals began to uh, accumulate as um, employees, federal employees, began to press for procedural uh, protections. But the longer tradition in the United States was um, uh, pretty much unlimited uh, removal power by the president. Finally, you can have ad hoc political interventions in the operations of the bureaucracy, emergency powers. Emergency powers don't exist in the U.S. federal constitution, but they do uh, in state constitutions. So, for example, in California, there is a clause permitting uh, emergency declarations, which uh, Jerry Brown took advantage of during the drought emergency to uh, override a lot of environmental uh, litigation. There are other kinds of emergency interventions, some of them legal and others illegal, that, uh, and some of them simply violating traditional norms of the exercise of power that can uh, interfere in bureaucratic decision-making. So those are the five basic mechanisms. Uh, it is not true that 
the bureaucracy is out of control. Uh, I think the problem exists that uh, the political principles simply do not take advantage of the mechanisms that they have at their fingertips uh, to direct bureaucracies to uh, do what they want uh, and not what the bureaucracies want. Now, there are several uh, important controversies that have developed around these control mechanisms. The first is a critique uh, of Chevron deference, uh, the idea that the courts ought to defer to expert agencies. This has been something that's been a longstanding critique of a number of uh, conservative justices. And on today's uh, Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas both have expressed uh, opposition to uh, Chevron deference. They uh, may uh, basically invalidate that doctrine in, in the current session or perhaps the one after that. Uh, in the meantime, they've expanded a so-called major questions exception to Chevron deference where they argue that certain issues are so large and important that the bureaucracies cannot uh, have the authority to simply um, move in that direction on their own authority and that they are subject to uh, judicial review. A second area where bureaucratic autonomy has uh, come under threat has to do with freedom of academic speech. Uh, Governor DeSantis uh, and the state of Florida have contended that academic speech is actually government speech, quite a remarkable uh, contention, uh, that then exempts uh, uh, academics from um, protections under the First Amendment, uh, and it also allows political leaders in the state to control what academics say. Uh, this naturally completely misunderstands the nature of academic freedom because universities, including state universities, have traditionally been granted the autonomy to be self-governing, meaning that they could decide what they teach, they could decide who to hire and who to fire. Uh, this autonomy was protected by uh, institutions like tenure that came up in the late 19th century as a means of protecting uh, employees of state universities from state legislators that wanted to determine uh, who was hired and who was fired. Uh, but this um, uh, is now thrown back into question as a result of the kind of political polarization that we've seen uh, in, the, uh, in the United States. The um, third big issue concerns removal power, which has become a central plank of a lot of conservative uh, politicians, including J.D. Vance and Ron DeSantis. Uh, it really came to a head at the end of the Trump administration, which uh, in its waning days in late October issued Executive Order 13957, uh, creating a Schedule F uh, that really represented a broad brush attack on the permanent bureaucracy. Uh, everybody was to be moved into a Schedule F where they became at-will employees and could be, uh, uh, they could be dismissed um, uh, en masse. A number of different 
legal theories have been put forward for why this was uh, permissible. Uh, some of the most extreme have maintained that the 1883 Pendleton Act that created a merit-based civil service was itself unconstitutional, constituted uh, a violation of the separation of powers. Um, there are other uh, arguments uh, like that in favor of a unitary executive that have supported this kind of a view. And it's a live threat because uh, many Republicans uh, have announced that if they re reclaim the White House in 2024, uh, they are going to fire very large numbers of uh, formerly protected federal bureaucrats and replace them with their own uh, loyal political uh, appointees. Now, I would have to say that there is a legitimate complaint that potentially could underlie uh, a relaxation of the procedural protections for, uh, for bureaucrats. Uh, as I mentioned, in the period after World War II, public sector unions have uh, lobbied to have procedural protections that in many cases make removals in the federal bureaucracy very, very difficult uh, procedurally uh, to the point where many public sector managers are really not willing to remove a, uh, an employee, a poorly per performing employee. Uh, if this kind of a loosening of those rules were done in the interests of bureaucratic efficiency, you might be able to make a case for it. But what I think these conservative politicians want to do is essentially to politicize the civil service. They don't want the idea, they don't like the idea of an autonomous bureaucracy, uh, and they want to be able to put their own uh, political loyalists in positions of decision-making power, not just at the top of federal agencies, but uh, uh, throughout their length. Uh, and so these are some of the... Uh, threats, I think, to an autonomous bureaucracy that uh, exist at the present moment. Now, again, to be fair, I think that there are a number of instances of bureaucratic overreach. Um, a famous one involved uh, the decision Sackett versus EPA that went to the Supreme Court where the Environmental Protection Agency uh, declared that a property owned by a couple named the Sackets was actually a protected federal waterway, despite the fact that it didn't border on water. Uh, the argument was that a migratory seabird may want to nest in that property, despite the fact that none had actually done so, and therefore it was subject to the authority of the uh, Clean Water Act. Uh, there are other cases, the expansion of Title IX to cover uh, sexual assault over the last decade has largely been done outside of the uh, Administrative Procedure Act. And so a couple of lines in Title IX uh, about uh, the forbidding of gender discrimination have been turned into hundreds of pages of guidance to schools and universities uh, without that kind of administrative review. Uh, there's another issue with the CDC eviction moratorium where the uh, CDC uh, extended the moratorium on evictions after COVID. This was invalidated by uh, by the courts eventually. But these are all um, uh, instances where bureaucracies have actually tried to expand their power uh, in ways that, uh, you know, were probably not, uh, probably not um, uh, uh, prudent. But 
the problem, I think, now is that conservatives want to move from these individual cases to a broad attack on all, uh, all delegated authority. Uh, and they're supported in this by a widespread populist distrust of expertise. Uh, I think that underlying this is a completely fanciful notion that democratic authorities can govern directly. Uh, that is to say, you know, on the model of a traditional, you know, town, uh, uh, town hall that would uh, manage the town's affairs. The idea that you can do this with the current federal government, given the complexity of modern governance, I think is 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 really uh, nonsense. If you I want to think about a case of this potentially. Do you really want to end the independence of the U.S. Federal Reserve? Do you want to have uh, members of Congress set interest rates, decide who gets bailed out, what banks get bailed out? We're in the middle of a crisis on that subject as we speak. Uh, or do you want to have ordinary citizens somehow try to uh, run the Fed? It's a ridiculous idea. And I think even... Um, the most diehard conservatives have not gone that far, but this is what the attack on the populist attack on um, on bureaucratic autonomy really entails. So I think the issue that we as a country face, as a democracy face, is how to protect necessary bureaucratic autonomy, and yet retain ultimate political control and accountability of our uh, bureaucracies. And that balance is actually a very difficult one to achieve. I'll give you two examples of it, one having to do with public health during the COVID um, pandemic, and the other having to do with the EPA's um, authority over carbon emissions. Take the case of public health. In the early days of the pandemic, in back in 2020, public health authorities were given broad authority uh, to make policy with regard to social distancing, masking, and the like. Uh, in fact, in California, this is actually written into the state constitution where county health officers have uh, full authority to actually make these decisions that cannot be overridden even by the governor or by the state legislature. And I think if you remember back to that period, a lot of people, uh, especially liberals, were uh, believed that it was illegitimate to even consider that there would be a trade-off uh, between maximizing public health and other types of social goods like employment, uh, education, uh, and the like. In the course of the pandemic, I think views on that trade-off began to change, and there was greater uh, acceptance of the idea that the strictest public health measures may actually be uh, overdoing it uh, a bit. This became more evident as the epidemic progressed, as COVID became less lethal, uh, and there was a huge amount of opposition to, especially from parents, on the closing of schools, uh, as was demanded by a lot of teachers unions and the like. In a way, the Chinese zero COVID policy was the extension of the public health approach to the pandemic um, uh, to the furthest extent, where the entire uh, society was locked down for, for nearly uh, two and a half years. Today, we mock the zero COVID uh, strategy and say that the Chinese made a huge mistake in prioritizing the maximization of health over the economy and other social goods. Uh, but 
that was a policy that actually, you know, prevailed in in a certain way in the United States in the early days of the uh, epidemic. And as a result, there's been, uh, uh, because of this early deference to health authorities, we've had a huge backlash uh, on the right that has gotten caught up in the polarization of the country uh, at the present moment. There are a lot of red state politicians that are now trying to dictate detailed health measures, such as whether people should wear masks, whether there should be shutdowns. There's, in fact, a draft bill in one red state that would criminalize the uh, prescribing of an mRNA uh, vaccine. And so having delegated a lot of authority to public health agencies early in the uh, early in the pandemic, the country has now shifted back way too far in the opposite direction, giving political authorities uh, the right to make these kinds of decisions. I think that a proper response should be for a political authority to balance social goods, where public health needs to be balanced against other kinds of social uh, objectives like employment, economic growth, education, uh, and the like. That's ultimately not a trade-off that can be made by public health authorities on their own, but does need to be made uh, politically. Uh, it should have been really made by the White House and by the president. Uh, the problem back in 2020 was that we had a president who did not actually want to make a careful balanced uh, judgment about the relative merits of these different social goods, but rather was seeking to simply maximize his own um, re-election uh, choices. Uh, and this is a problem, you know, in a democracy. It's not something that can easily be solved through uh, further institutional rules. Uh, the second case uh, concerns uh, carbon emissions. Uh, the Supreme Court made a decision in West Virginia versus EPA last summer in which it decided that the Environmental Protection Agency had exceeded its authority by using the language of the Clean Air Act to regulate carbon emissions. This is a case where I think the outcome was substantively bad but procedurally correct. That is to say, uh, the real problem was not the conservative Supreme Court. The problem was a Congress that has failed in its duty to legislate on this really important issue. It is really important that the EPA actually does regulate uh, carbon emissions, but you can't get that kind of legislation through Congress, and therefore uh, the court stepped in, or the 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 agency stepped in to expand uh, its authority. And the way that our check and balance system works uh, is that if an agency goes too far, the courts are a check that prevent it from doing so. Uh, so that this actually was procedurally, I think, the way the system was supposed to work. Uh, however, I would note Elena Kagan's dissent in that case, where she said that it's actually not Congress that is pulling back the EPA, it is the courts substituting its judgment in place of that of the EPA as to what is an acceptable policy regarding um, regulation of carbon emissions, emissions. I think a lot of progressives today believe that the courts are a legitimate substitute for legislative action. This is very understandable in light of the racial history of the United States where the court 
uh, and its authority has been critical in the uh, protection of fundamental individual rights. But in other areas of policy, uh, the this kind of uh, activism on the part of the courts can be dangerous. And I think what we're seeing now is that conservatives can make use of the courts just as well as uh, liberals can. Uh, and we already saw one result of this in the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. I think in the end, uh, in our constitutional system, it's much better to have Congress make these decisions and delegate broad authorities to make the kinds of trade-offs that are necessary. These are things that the courts are not able to do, but bureaucracies that are ultimately democratically accountable uh, are better positioned uh, to, uh, to uh, deal with. So I actually think that the problem of modern public administration is actually different from uh, uh, the kinds of issues that I've been talking about up till now uh, that have to do with procedural constraints on the bureaucracy. I think that if you ask many Americans what they don't like about the uh, American state, and especially the federal government at the moment, it isn't really that they're not procedurally following the right, uh, the right rules. It's actually that they follow too many rules, uh, that they are uh, slow, uh, that they're bureaucratic, uh, that they take too long to make decisions. And as a result, uh, they don't actually achieve the kinds of outcomes that Americans uh, expect. Uh, this, um, I think, is the result of the proceduralism, the excessive proceduralism uh, of the American bureaucracy and the belief that uh, it is procedures and the following of procedures that creates legitimacy, whereas I think legitimacy actually frequently comes from actually getting things done that people want to have done. This was an argument that um, came up uh, by a law professor, Nicholas Bagley, who had worked for the state uh, of Michigan for Gretchen Whitmer in an interview that he had, a very interesting interview with uh, Ezra Klein. There's lots of examples from the building of infrastructure in which excessive proceduralism uh, has really led to um, the, the inability to build anything and particularly to build things that would be necessary to deal uh, either with climate mitigation or climate uh, adaptation. I could run through a lot of examples of this, but I will, uh, I will spare you all of this. I want to end just by talking a little bit about the academic study of uh, executive branches and bureaucracies. Uh, as I said, I think that the downgrading of public administration has been a big mistake and that we need to uh, upgrade its status and the attention that is paid to it, uh, both in research and in teaching. The other big academic area that touches on this subject is administrative law, which is a really big uh, discipline that oftentimes is not very much connected to the social scientists that are studying these same uh, issues. And the approaches are very different. Most social scientists tend to look at outcomes and effectiveness um, uh, when they study uh, public bureaucracies. Administrative lawyers generally proceed deductively from underlying constitutional principles and make normative arguments about the appropriateness uh, of existing procedures and therefore tend to emphasize procedures over outcomes in 
the way that they construct the administrative state. And I think that this is one of the things uh, that has led to the excessive proceduralism in American public administration that then leads to uh, outcomes that don't emerge from the bureaucracy and then leads to the uh, distrust that ordinary people have uh, of bureaucracies. And so I think that we need to think more, uh, you know, in a more social scientific way uh, about this problem and uh, recognize that proceduralism in itself has been a big problem for uh, liberal democracy, not just in the United States, but in many other uh, countries as well. So with that, thank you very much for your attention. Uh, continue to do the great work that you are doing, and thank you very much for this opportunity to speak with you. <music>